This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey, 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 it's Jimmy Carboni. This week I'm excited to share a really special episode we recorded before the COVID-19 crisis. Clay Risen, the author of The Crowded Hour, Theodore Roosevelt, The Rough Riders, and The Dawn of the American Century, joined me in the studio along with Teresa McCullough, the beer historian at the Smithsonian. We had a great conversation about American brewing at the turn of the 20th century. It was really cool. Hoping everyone is staying safe and healthy and that you enjoy this episode. Heritage Radio Network is working hard to maintain their regular programming, in addition to bringing listeners important coverage of how COVID-19 crisis is impacting the hospitality industry. Please make a donation at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey guys, I'm Jimmy Carboni. This is a special show. It's March 2020, and we're, our show tonight is called Researching Beer History. This will air in April 2020. Um, our guests are in the room. First, uh, Clay Risen, our good buddy, our author, has a book out. Um, tell us about your book, and I'm going to tell you how it inspired the show. All right, well, I'm glad to hear it inspired the show. That's uh, no, it's uh, so the book is The Crowded Hour, it's uh, about the relatively brief but pretty significant Spanish American War, and specifically the story of Theodore Roosevelt and the Rough Riders and how they played into that story and how it shaped Roosevelt's life and and kind of really set America on the course for the 20th century. So, I knew that Clay has written about whiskey and has written about beer. I knew there would be some reference to food and drink, so I, I dived in and uh, read the book, and I couldn't believe the, the number of quotes uh, related to beer and food that were in there. Ultimately, the, the quote that jumped out was, the men at war missed beers and their dogs. And this kind of set us on the, the, the thought that maybe this could be a, a researching beer history episode. So uh, we reached out, and we're very lucky to have someone from the Smithsonian. Teresa, please introduce yourself. Thanks so much for having me, Jimmy and Clay. Uh, my name is Teresa McCullough, and I'm the curator of the American Brewing History Initiative at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Uh, this is a project to build a new collection of the histories of home brewing and craft beer in the United States. Okay, so Clay, um, when you researched the book, you know, were you intending to find references to food and drink and uh, did you find references to food and well, drink? Well, I did, and and look, I mean, I think it wasn't uh, it wasn't like I set out to write the book so I could talk about food and drink, but I think having a background in some of that made me a little more aware of the way people talk about food and drink, and not to highlight it, but just to make it clear that this is a part of everyone's everyday life. Is how do they think about what are they going to eat? What do they eat? Where wherever they are, whether they're back at home or in the battlefield, and you know, I think that's whenever you're writing history, it's important, I think, to keep that seemingly mundane stuff in there because that's what people, readers, connect with. They see, oh, you know, what do I want for breakfast? Or what do I imagine people would want to drink after a battle? You know, bring and, that out. And this is, listeners, this is 1898. So, yeah. uh, Teresa, just tell us about how would you go about researching, you know, this time period or, and some of the, you know, things that stand out for you. 
Well, I think uh, clay includes a lot of really wonderful primary sources. Historians call primary sources the uh, the materials that people of the past have recorded, have left behind themselves. So those might be things like diaries or uh, government reports or even uh, press reporting of the time. And then uh, historians of subsequent generations create secondary sources. They interpret those primary sources in, in particular ways. But then, you know, what, what Clay and other writers do is weave a wonderful story around those those combination of sources. And, you know, one aspect that I, re- that I really enjoyed re- of this book is the extent to which Clay's writing is very sensory. And so to your point about the food and the drink, uh, you know, yes, these, these things pervade the, the stories that we, uh, that we have from this time period. But, you know, we also have the sounds of battle and uh, the sounds of, uh, of, you know, men being wounded in war. And so, you know, it's a, um, it's a story in which food and drink and, and other aspects of our sensory lives are very present. So, uh, the story starts out in San Antonio, Texas. So w- why was that a place where everyone gathered? I mean, so so San Antonio was it was where the Rough Riders in particular gathered. So, uh, you know, Theodore Roosevelt and his, uh, his compatriot, uh, Leonard Wood, uh, they had been working in Washington. They were uh, you know, working for the federal government. And uh, both of them you know, left their day jobs to go create this uh, volunteer force. Uh, and they chose San Antonio for a couple of reasons. It was uh, close to Galveston with the idea that they could get down to a port and hop over to Cuba where the fighting was. Uh, it was uh, relatively easy to get to from the various parts of the West where the men were being recruited from. So New Mexico, Arizona, Oklahoma, Colorado, uh, eventually some from Texas. And, and, and as well as, for people that are comfortable with horses. Yeah, I mean, that was the idea behind the Rough Riders was, you know, we want to get guys who, uh, because our, the army was so small, they had to get volunteers quickly and uh, to get people who probably had a leg up in terms of fighting skills. Uh, and maybe just camp life. So get those guys together. And and there was a big fort already in San Antonio. So it was an easy place to uh, set up a, a training camp and maybe you know, be able to rely on some supplies and get horses. And cause this was a cavalry regiment, so they needed horses. And San Antonio was a booming city at the time. I mean, it obviously still is, but it was uh, you know, one of the biggest cities in the Southwest. And so it was a place where uh, there were train routes, there was a, a booming, uh, particularly German population. Um, I mean, I think the other thing that was sort of fun for me when I was writing it was to look at kind of the almost sort of this, I mean, you'd call it sort of the psycho history, not really what people were intending, but sort of what was sort of the underlying uh, is sort of emanations of San, sort of the culture of San Antonio that make it attractive as sort of a, a place and and one of the or symbolic maybe is maybe the better word is that you know here's a place that was uh founded by the spanish was uh you know became part of texas and then was uh inundated with german immigrants and so all those things make it a very exciting place to then launch a war against the spanish and so so there's i think the one of the themes that i try to bring out in the book is that you know this happens in 1898 and it's a time of intense immigration intense change in america and it's our first kind of voluntary war it's the first war we declare on uh an overseas i mean cuba but you know an overseas country and uh, that we decide to go to war. And, and what, what does it mean that that happens at that time? So that cultural ferment. And then, of course, food and drink is part of that. Yeah. And Teresa, so you've done a little research. Uh, 
What was going on 1898 in America for beer? Well, for beer, I mean, this is it's a really interesting period to consider. Um, you know, we think in our more recent collective memory of, you know, when we think about consolidation in the brewing industry, we might think about the 1960s, 1970s. Um, it was a reaction to that consolidation that this uh, rise of homebrewing and microbrewing started. That's where my launchpad is at the American History Museum. But the first era of consolidation in the American brewing industry very much happened in the 1880s and the 1890s. So before that, um, we had... Uh, the, the beginning of American beer was uh, beer brewed at home, primarily by women and enslaved people. But these waves of German immigrants that Clay writes about, um, many professional brewers came among them. And so they started to open the first professional breweries in the U.S. It was in the 1880s and 90s that um, some of these breweries had enough capital to access um, technological advances like mechanical refrigeration, advances in bottling and advertising and being able to ship their beer uh, under cool conditions. And so um, huge breweries like Anheuser-Busch or um, Lemp or Schlitz or Pabst, you know, they were really able to take advantage of um, the growing infrastructure in the U.S. at the time uh, and also thirsty consumers. And so in San Antonio, we see very much this moment of transition between uh, kind of homegrown beer scene and then um, the arrival of these big breweries, uh, including Anheuser-Busch. Great. Um, Clay, did, was there any reference to particular breweries uh, at the time, or were people, were they just drinking national breweries? Were they drinking a regional brewery? Well, were no, they all the same styles by then? Yeah, well, that actually, that I'd love to know more about that from Teresa, because it, was, it wasn't something that people talked about. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that's you you read texts and you read these primary sources and diaries and and you wonder when people say beer what does that mean to them right what and one of the things for example uh you know there's a story uh, one of the famous stories about the rough riders is they're out and about theodore roosevelt is they're out training all day and there's just sweaty and it's 100 degrees and terrible conditions and they're coming back to camp and one of the things about this camp where they were on the outskirts all these uh bars had popped up these sort of just you know jerry-rigged like you know probably some crates and the the you know keg and uh they're all serving beer so and a tent and uh so they walk by it and you need a tent yeah 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 so (laughs) roosevelt they walk by and roosevelt says to his men look guys uh you've had a you've done great today uh everybody here i'm beers on me just if you get drunk you're in big trouble but go go at it and it's such a casual kind of thing, like the, the way the story's told, it clearly, I mean, there's something that stuck with me about that, aside from Roosevelt's magnanimity and just like buying his men all this beer, is, uh, is that, you know, that it, it, it was no big deal. It's like, yeah, let's just all go get drink beer after our training. And it says so much about so the military culture at the time, about uh, the place of beer, in American culture, I don't think that Roosevelt really saw that as anything other than just thirst quenching. You know, obviously you don't want to drink too much, you might get drunk, but it's beer, it's no big deal. And it's it's different than the way we think about it today. And, and just to kind of ponder what that means, I think it's fascinating. Teresa? Yeah, and I think that's right on the mark that um, what Germans brought to the U.S. was their drinking culture. And part of that was the establishment of these beer gardens where entire families would go and rest and relax and enjoy these low alcohol, refreshing lagers. You know, these the lagers that we have in front of us, you know, they're served cool. They're uh, very light, effervescent. Um, you know, they were very different from the kind of beers that preceded them, the more English-style ales that uh, that had been more prevalent in the early part of the 19th century. Um, but one, one aspect of that, I believe it was a story in your book that stuck with me, was 
that you know Roosevelt was always so eager to show that he was one of the guys, and and that extended to him drinking with them at one point, if that's if that's right, a drinking beer, and yeah. he very much got slapped on the wrist for that. And and so just to get to this idea of um, uh, you know all the different cultural meanings of beer, that that beer was a way to relax, it was a way to commune with your your fellow man at the time. Uh, you know, by doing that though, he overstepped the line just mm-hmm. a bit. Um, yeah, and and it's it's interesting. Roosevelt was not for any other reason than just self control. He was kind of a teetotaler, but it always that story always made me wonder. You know, did 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 it did that extend to beer for him? He wasn't really a beer drinker, but he obviously saw beer different from the way he saw spirits or or wine or anything else. And you know, we do too today. But I think it had maybe that distinction meant something different at the time. And brewers worked very hard to to push that image. You know, they argued from the beginnings of the 19th century onward that beer was different from distilled spirits. That uh, that it was more benign. It was more healthful. And that extended into the realm of things like organizing. So brewers organized into the U.S. Brewers Association in the 18 in 1862, and that was in response to the federal government levying attacks on brewers to fund the Civil War. Uh, brewers from the start really kind of um, circled the wagons. They, they protected their interests and their approach to the production of alcohol is very different from that of distilled spirits. And then you said that when the Spanish-American War started, there was an, another round of excise taxes. Yes, yes. And, and you know, in, in reading more about beer, you know, in the same time period as the Spanish-American War, it was, it was so fascinating to find just the extent to which beer, I mean, beer built this war and it built San Antonio, uh, you know, to, a, to a, in a way that's not immediately visible. But yes, in 1898, when the U.S. went to war, um, they looked to the brewing industry, which had grown so big and so successful. And they said, you know, the U.S. Brewers Association, you've been very, you've been very good at fending off rises in your excise taxes in the last several decades, but we're going to war. We need to raise your taxes for the first time uh, since the Civil War. So uh, then at the end of the war, though, you get a kind of flip side of that story, which is that um, prohibition advocates looked at the experience of the Spanish-American War, which Clay writes about very well, that that soldiers just often found themselves in the middle of these very disorganized conditions. You know, they didn't have enough to eat, to drink, transports didn't show up, and uh, and prohibition uh, advocates use this as a way to argue that alcohol should no longer have a place in army canteens. And so in 1901, the Canteen Act of 1901 banned the uh, sale, the production, or the service of alcohol in army canteens. So you start the war with the government needing the brewing industry to fund the war, and then you finish the war with the, the government banning alcohol from canteens. You know, it's, it's there's a lot of great stories in American history, like Vassar College was funded by Vassar Brewery, the money from that. Um, you said that th- there was also a hotel in San Antonio yes. that was funded by beer yes, money. Yes, yes. And so, and again, Clay writes about the Manger Hotel, which is uh, still exists, and is this uh, grand, uh, beautiful hotel, a Gilded Age era hotel in San Antonio, right on the plaza. So again, you get to this idea of, of you know myth making and history. Um, Charles Manger had arrived in San Antonio around 1850. He was a German immigrant. Um, he was a cooper by trade. Uh, stayed in a boarding house. The widow who ran the boarding house was a very good cook. So Charles marries the widow of the boarding house, and Charles. Charles also happens to be a very good brewer. And so the combination of their skills, her cooking, his brewing, uh, prompted them to build this beautiful new hotel in a new location. And then um, Manger's Brewery, Western Brewery, became the biggest brewery in Texas in the 1860s and 1870s. And so it was the the funds from his brewery that built this hotel. And so when Roosevelt was present in the hotel in this ornate bar, enrolling members of the Rough Riders, they were literally sitting on top of cellars where beer was being lagered. Uh, and a kind of quirky fact, which you also notice, the, this bar was uh, revitalized in the 1880s to look like an exact replica of the pub inside the English House of 
explores. And so to, to build further on your um, your characterization of San Antonio as this place where so many cultures meet, you've got this you know German-style beer building this hotel, and the hotel is redesigned to um, you know connote sensations of being in England, you know, aristocratic New England, or in England. So, um, but but beer very much built this hotel where the Rough Riders launched themselves off of uh, in San Antonio. So. Yeah, and you wrote a lot about San Antonio in, in the book. Um, why was that? I think San Antonio is in the context of this story. Well, it's a fascinating city generally. But I think, you know, look, San Antonio was founded by the Spanish, uh, among other things, as a check on its very northern border of, you know, it's part of the northern border of its territory in, in Mexico, as a check against the French. And so we forget that, you know, back at that time. Who are the French? Yeah. <laughs> well, but the, the, that in that part of, in a large part of the interior of the United States, the British had no real place. It was the French and the Spanish who were competing to control these territories. And, you know, so San Antonio represents the, the kind of the apogee of Spanish rule in the New World. And as uh, that sort of receded, other other groups, other powers, and eventually, obviously, the Americans move in, the Texans and the Americans. And so that by 1898, uh, San Antonio is uh, fully an American city, although it's American in the sense of being polyglot and all these different groups uh, living together in the same sort of downtown area. And, and then it's the launching pad for a war a, to kick the Spanish out of the Western Hemisphere. So it's sort of, it's both the high point and the low point for Spanish, uh, for Spain's place in the Western Hemisphere. And so I think there's, there's just something symbolic about that that I found very resonant. Teresa, um, so at that time, 1898, so, so beer was pervasive in American life. So we're drinking a Rothaus Pils, which is a, a Black Forest-style uh, Pils from Germany that's been very popular in New York City. And we felt this was the closest thing to what, what th- those people were drinking now. I, I think that's a very good guess. Um, so there were more German immigrants than Czech immigrants uh, to the U.S. Uh, Pilsner as a style is um, from the Bohemian area of what would become the Czech Republic. Um, Pilsner was invented in 1842. And so I tried to think about, you know, if Charles Manger arrived in San Antonio in 1850 and started brewing soon after that, he was probably brewing more of a traditional German-style lager. But by the time the Rough Riders arrived in San Antonio in 1898, um, Manger had died long ago. There was someone else brewing um, at the at the brewery. And so it's very likely that the style might have changed more to, to toward a Pilsner style. Um, but interesting to note also in 1884, Adolphus Bush of Anheuser-Busch in St. Louis arrived in San Antonio, founded the Lone Star Brewing Company. And so, um, you know, if, if soldiers were drinking Lone Star beer that looks Texan, sounds very Texan, it's it's big beer. It's American big beer already by that point. And so, uh, you know, I think there's a kind of standardization of the taste of beer at this time that might not always be evident by the name of the brewery, by your location. Um, but places like Lone Star Brewery were certainly distributing into Mexico, into California, throughout Texas. I mean, we, we know what happened after Prohibition and, you know, in the 50s, the kind of lighter style American lager. Those same producers, Lone Star, Anheuser-Busch, was there was the the bill the grain bill or any the, the profile any different in 1898 than it was in 1950 well 
in the in the latter half of the 19th century, latter decades of the 19th century, that's when um, American brewers started to use different kinds of grains in their beers, things like corn and rice, and you know, th- grains that would not have been allowed by the German Reinheitsgebot, which called for only the use of barley uh, in beer. And uh, the, this adjunct style of lager, American adjunct lager, which you know we are is still is the most popular style on our shelves in the U.S. today, it developed during this time period, and brewers argued that they were very much responding to American tastes for beers that were very light, very clean, um, very low alcohol. And so um, th- that was a response to just the just the exploding economy of beer at the time. But uh, I-, I think beer likely would taste pretty recognizable to us then as it as these styles do today. Clay? How are you, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. This <laughs> I'm just happy we got this show together. <laughs> yeah. We got Teresa, um, you know, so you're in, t- in New York City today to, to do yes. another event. Yes, I am. And uh, happy to mention that. If, if uh, I'm, The Brewers Association, which is the nonprofit trade group that uh, promotes small and independent brewers, um, they're having a, an event tonight um, shining the spotlight on women in the craft brewing industry. And uh, so I'm very happy to be here to be able to talk That's on that. That's great. And you're probably working with Julia Hertz, yes, right? Yes. yes. So ch- shout out to her when you hear yes. this in April. Uh, you'll be looking forward to that in another year. Um, this has been really cool. And what I love about having you both there is that, to me, the history of beer, some people like Garrett Oliver, you know, who's a buddy, um, Pete Brown in England, haven't really read a lot about uh, American beer history. Um, what what What's out there, Teresa? Are there archives in St. Louis or Milwaukee? Are there archives, other people that are getting funded to research this great American industry, um, or is it just like you're just the, the beginning of it? Well, there are definitely archival collections around the country. And so you mentioned um, Anheuser-Busch in St. Louis, um, Miller in Milwaukee, Coors in Golden. They all hold archival collections. Uh, there, are, There's also a proliferating number of regionally focused archives. So I'm thinking of the, um, the Oregon Hops and Brewing Archives at Oregon State in Corvallis, Oregon. Um, uh, the Hagley Museum at the University of Delaware, they hold a, a small collection of uh, oral histories related to brewers in that region. And so um, it's it's definitely, it's a field that combines agricultural history and industry and consumer culture and advertising. And uh, because of that, it becomes kind of an exciting um, hunt, you know, if you're a historian for sources at all these different places. Um, and I, if anyone is listening, and, and certainly if you work in organizations like that, I, I am um, very much encouraging of full-time support for archivists at these places to organize these holdings to make them available to researchers because they're just gold mines all over the country uh, related to this history. Yeah, we, we asked a couple, like a Master Cicerone Ryan, <laughs> Ryan, Master Cicerone Ryan in Buffalo, he recommended the, the archivists at, at, in St. Louis at Anheuser-Busch. Uh, hopefully, we'll talk to it in a future date. So, in terms of researching your book, Clay, um, y- you you mentioned that a, a lot of the references you assume that they were talking about beer. You said like someone would would want to go home and sit on his porch, and but they didn't necessarily say what they were drinking or that they would be drinking. Yeah, I mean, it's you know you often have to read between the lines of what you know. You have to take what you know about the context of a time and. Maybe read between the lines a little bit to imagine what people are saying, rather than just taking literally what they're saying. Uh, so, you know, what I think you had asked what, uh, how often people would explicitly mention beer or explicitly mention spirits, and what I thought was striking was how, while they did talk about that a lot, it often wasn't mentioned. And yet, I think that part of that is because it was just assumed that. Uh, 
this is a daily part of part of you know your your diet your uh, your lifestyle and so there's no need to mention uh, I can't wait to go home and sit on my porch there's no need to talk about beer because it's assumed that that's what's going to be consumed or something like that you know that this led up to the I don't want to talk about prohibition as much as the shifting attitudes towards drinking you know um, I read something not too long ago in the 1970s um, it was still legal for a New Yorker that was a working person could sit on a bench and drink a beer with their lunch. And it, it was in the New York Times in Mayor Koch. I guess it was a re- really response to hippies and radicals. And basically it said that the typical Con Edison worker, we're, we're not going to outlaw drinking in public to, to punish them. It's more for the radicals. I don't know <laughs> if, if you've been studying that era of like attitudes towards drinking in public. Well, um, and this probably gets to the history of the way that prohibition was repealed. The federal government left it to, to the states to figure out how to repeal prohibition. And so the effect of that was this, these, this patchwork nature of alcohol legislation all around the country, um, you know, which, which dictated when and where you could buy alcohol. Um, I remember when I was in college in Massachusetts, you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. Um, you could not homebrew legally in Mississippi and Alabama until 2013. And wow. so um, as of 2013, homebrewing was, was <laughs> legal throughout the U.S. I mean, federal, at a federal Federal level was not actually legal until 1979. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of the um, the remnants of prohibition and its aftermath are very much with us. Of course, the way that alcohol is distributed, the, the, the three-tier system, is completely completely due to um, to prohibition and to the anxiety that society had about just seemingly a very direct line between alcohol producers and consumers before that point. And tell us what you're studying, because you're you're studying a very interesting time in American. Brewing and home brewing history. Sure, my, at the Smithsonian. Yes, yes. yes. And so, uh, I mean, they're a big story. When, <laughs> when your job went public, everybody was talking about you got to be the Smithsonian beer historian, but you need a PhD, don't you? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know about that. But um, no, so uh, the the brewing industry, you know, we talked about this first era of consolidation in the, the end of the 19th century, but the 1960s, 70s was the second huge era of consolidation that the biggest breweries were the ones that were able to wait out the dry years of prohibition. Um, in reaction to the consolidation of American beer, which prompted the kind of homogenization of American beer styles to adjunct lagers, um, homebrewers who had, especially who had traveled abroad in the mid 20th century, whether for military service, educational purposes, you know, they went to places like Germany, Belgium, Scotland, and just discovered this world of beer out there. Of course, all these other amazing, delicious beer styles, and and inspired by that time abroad and by a movement that preceded ours in the UK called the Campaign for Real Ale, uh, homebrewers in the U.S became increasingly active in the 60s and 70s, and it's out of early homebrewing activity that you get early microbrewing activity, um, which was concentrated heavily in California, Colorado, the Pacific Northwest, New England, um, and then out of that, eventually, we get what we have today, which is craft beer, which is over 8,000 breweries in the country. I mean, it's an you astonishing your, your dad number. was a home brewer. My dad was a home brewer, yes. And, and now, as a historian, I appreciate that he started home brewing pretty early in the early 1980s. And, and when I got the job, he passed on to me his uh, his homebrewing manuals from the early 80s and, and uh, printed in the 70s, and, and they're all British. You know, they're, they're from um, uh, Britain and Scotland and, and because that's what it was available at the time. Um, so, yeah, so when I was growing up and, you know, I was seven, he would have me and my siblings help him cap bottles, and I just thought it was the smell was disgusting to me at the time, <laughs> and I, tr- I tried to run outside. But, um, but, but, no, I mean, I grew up understanding how important good beer was. He's from Milwaukee, and uh, I do have another memory, too, of a um, particular year when, uh, you know, we had – 
gotten into the practice of leaving out milk and cookies for Sienna on the the hearth. And one year he told us, you know, Sienna really likes Sam Adams Boston lager. So, <laughs> so the, the message was clear, you know, why don't you reach for an Anchor Steam beer, Sam Adams Boston lager, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. So, you know, just these iconic early microbrewed beers was something that was in our fridge um, for a while. So that, that was the kind of um, personal um, backstory to seeing this job ad pop up. That's great. Hey, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, now you'll be listening. This is April 2020. We've got a special show, Research in Beer History. Back to our guests. Teresa, you had a question for... I did. Clay. Um, so, Clay, one one aspect of your book that I really enjoyed was your discussion of um, how this decision to go to war for, for all of these soldiers and the Rough Riders, um, well, volunteers for the Rough Riders, was revolving around these uh, this idea related to manhood, American manhood at the time, and, uh, and uh, you know, the the kind of military imagination of that. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit about that and how you see beer intersecting with that. Huh, that's a great question. Um, I think there's uh, there's actually, there's a fantastic book uh, by a, a historian named Kristen Hoganson on uh, this entire question uh, of manhood in the Spanish-American War. And it's fascinating because it very much engaged with the 1890s when manhood was this big topic and of course we think about Theodore Roosevelt and sort of the the importance to him of sort of the, the manly life and and virility and uh but this was something people were concerned about you know, here's this growing country it's uh changing rapidly demographically and uh, urbanizing and what does that mean for manhood it's also sort of the Victorian era so people are thinking about it in that context and so going to war was always framed in this gendered way but also uh, almost anthropomorphized way where Cuba was the woman who needed saving by the virile American man. And uh, Hoganson in her book has some great examples, and, and I came across some of this as well, of depictions of Cuba as a, uh, a woman in distress, sometimes visually, cartoons uh, that would show that. And uh, and always with the American man coming to save them. And so, you know, where does where does beer fit into that i think it's part of just the general kind of background of that culture of uh where men men who are men are men who drink beer as part of their uh daily life it's it's interesting too that and this is not something i've thought a lot about but just as your prompt is sort of leading me to think it also you know is this sort of moment where you have a movement like 
the temperance movement or the prohibition movement coming out of a certain it was part of it not the whole thing is is also an attempt to uh you know whether constrain or to regulate uh abuse by men or or so sort of the violent excesses of men uh that are often brought on by alcohol and so so alcohol is sort of there as kind of a, a substrate of this debate or this this tension and then going to war is to some extent a release for that uh it's an expression of that and and also just to bring it back to roosevelt i think i mean he's this fascinating guy in the middle of this because he's not somebody who consumed a lot of alcohol uh again not for moral reasons but for sort of personal control reasons he thought that if you got there's a story when he was the only time he got drunk he was a uh, an undergrad at harvard and he uh was embarrassed the next day he had just you know there's no record of what he did but apparently to him he made a fool of himself and from then on he was uh almost never drank because of me so so for him you know part of being a man is not drinking because it's about self-control but also at the time you know that's not the case for a lot of other people so i don't know it's it's again i think this is why this time period is so fascinating because there's no one direction there's no answer there's no this is what america was like it's a bunch of competing forces that are to some extent aware of where america is headed just that you know this is this big country that's growing economically it's growing demographically it's filling out its interior it's going to be a big deal but what does that mean nobody knows mm -hmm. and so in the 1890s there's that that's kind of behind everything that's happening and i realized when i was thinking about your book and about and about beer um, in conjunction with that war that um it was in 18, 1896 that anheuser-busch began to produce um, this lithograph custer's last fight which they distribute the brewery distributed to saloons nationwide i mean it's considered to be one of the most popularly printed lithographs of all time, 150,000 copies. Uh, but this print shows Custer in his cavalry uniform, you know, totally besieged by um, Cheyenne and Arapaho and Lakota forces. And it's, it's you know, we talked earlier about the, the growing standardization of the, the taste, pro the flavor profile of American beer. I mean, consider that if, you know, men throughout the country are going to saloons that are likely, you know, tied to Anheuser-Busch, they're drinking beer that tastes the same, and they look up over the bar and they see this lithograph of this white man fighting against, you know, the Native Americans who have, you know, been very forcefully ejected or, you know, from, from various places in the West. Um, it just, it's a, it's a really interesting coincidence that that, that happens at 1896 and then, the, you know, America goes to war in 1898. So. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, so coming from more of a, to the extent that I know anything about uh, alcohol history in America, it's much more from kind of a whiskey background. And uh, one of the things I think was really interesting was the, the prevalence of beer in so much of the diaries and the conversation about uh, by men from who are being drawn into this unit from the West. And yet we think of uh, the Wild West as being all about whiskey. Uh, everyone's just drinking frontier whiskey. And even today, right, there's bullet frontier whiskey. It's always about that as kind of the dominant idea. And yet clearly, especially in the cities out West, that beer has a very prominent role to play. And and so that's something that I I. Yeah, it did make it into the book explicitly, but it was definitely in the back of my head that, you know, I think that there's a different picture of what alcohol consumption looked like than the sort of the stereotype of the West. Right. Teresa, like the history of beer in America. So like, yeah, like 
more rural areas seemed like cider making was was the, the way things were. But in the 19th century, there were more urban areas making beer. What's the connection between cities and urban areas and, and beer? Well, I would say beer beer is a primarily agricultural product that is best made in cities, best made in urban areas. Uh, you know, you need abundant quantities of fresh water. You need grains. Uh, breweries that produce on a large scale, you need a big physical footprint for a brewery. And then most importantly, two things, eventually, uh, you need refrigeration, which is um, easier to access in cities, eventually. Um, and then also you need a way to get your beer to customers. So eventually rail lines and then, um, you know, uh, highway networks. And so that, that's the reason, multiple reasons why beer is just, it's more efficiently, more um, profitably produced in cities than in urban or rural areas. Have you thought about why, I mean, why this type of beer, German lagers, became so popular in America then instead of other things? Like now we have hard seltzer, we have wine coolers. I mean, why was there ever going to be anything else to challenge it? You know, some kind of apple cooler or something? Well, initially, I mean, at the beginning of American history, cider, apple cider, was by far the most prevalent alcoholic beverage. Uh, everybody drank apple cider and also distilled spirits because, you know, America was a colonial, um, it was a colonial holding that was tied into other colonies. Uh, you know, that's why we drank rum, which is distilled from, from sugar, uh, whiskey, which is distilled from corn. But, you know, the, the appeal of beer, I mean, it was um, by virtue of its low alcohol profile, the lager beer, um, it's cool temperature you know it's very much a refreshing um a refreshing not you know pretty benign beverage that could be consumed by a large swath of the population and that then became kind of um embroidered into the social culture of the u.s and so you know just the 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 mushrooming of saloons that happen as america industrialized in the latter half of the 19th century you finish your workday you have a little extra money to spend Go to the, you, you go to the saloon. You meet people who speak your language. Who can maybe give you tips on where to find housing, um, tips on how to register, you know, to, to, to vote in the U.S. Uh, you know, it's it's a, a beverage that came to have many more importances beyond its taste. And at the risk of sounding overly dramatic, I would I would characterize beer as you know kind of the infra- building the infrastructure of American life. That you don't often see it, but it's it's building the economy. It's building politics. It's building communities in a way that um, is so important in a structuring way, but not. You know, it doesn't always call attention to itself. Great. Um, Clay, anything? No, I think, I'm mean, just to your point as well, it's important to remember that one of the main uh, forces leading up to Prohibition was the Anti-Saloon League, that the saloon as a place uh, was just as important as what was consumed in the saloon. And, and the people who drank yeah. in saloons even yeah. more, that, that, you know, many scholars think that, that the coming of Prohibition was very much a kind of anxiety about these purportedly immigrant hordes who were drinking in saloons and, you know, forming these political machines rather than alcohol itself. And that's why Prohibition did not actually ban the consumption of alcohol. It banned the production, the transportation, the sale of alcohol. So those who were, uh, you know, had the material means to stockpile what they wanted to drink during the dry years were very able to do that. Um, the Those who were of lower socioeconomic status could not. Yeah. And Roosevelt is often, I mean, he is sort of adjunct to that where when he was police head of the police board in new york uh he cracked down on saloons but again it's not so much because of the consumption it was more because of uh well certainly the political corruption that came out of uh saloon ownership and their their ties i I could buy your vote come by and have drinks and yeah exactly just for our guy yeah sort of seen as more of uh yeah a place of a lot of 
a lot of things happening, beer consumption or you know alcohol consumption being one of them. But it wasn't that he was anti-alcohol per se. Have you guys read America Walks Into a Bar? Yes. Yeah, we did a show with her a number of years ago. So I don't know if you want to draw an analogy to that. The origins of American democracy happened in tap rooms and sure. pubs. Sure, yeah. No, I mean, um, Christine Sismondo, she wrote a wonderful book and uh, just about the many importances of of places like where we are sitting right now where people come to socialize and um, eat and drink and talk and and you end up um, becoming involved in um, conversations that might have a political import uh, or you know social import beyond just um, you know catching up with your neighbors great Uh, was there anything that you wanted to bring up separate from this related to your research or questions for clay well i I just like to um, extend a simple invitation to all your listeners out there that um the, uh, my project at the Smithsonian, as I mentioned, it's to build this new archive of, uh, of homebrewing and craft beer history, and I am building on previous collections we have at the museum that are strongest in late 19th century brewing equipment, early 20th century beer advertising, and a, a very rich uh, array of, of temperance materials. But um, the things that I'm gathering that will stay in the Smithsonian collections um, they are intended to document this recent, most recent and ongoing era of, of beer history. And so I've been um, traveling around the country and recording oral histories with um, brewers and writers and maltsters and all the many people who compose this very dynamic uh, community, um, but then also gathering objects and documents to share in the form of exhibits and also to researchers over time. And so um, if you visit the Smithsonian now, the American History Museum, on the ground floor, we have uh, a food and drink history exhibit, which is one of our more popular exhibits in the museum. It's where Julia Child's kitchen lives. But the back corner of that exhibit is now dedicated to beer history. And so um, the earliest years of homebrewing and microbrewing activity um, concentrated in, the, in California, Colorado, the 1960s through 1980s, artifacts are now on display that tell that history. And so I have um, their amazing... Doc, uh, amazing objects uh, such as um, Charlie Papazian, who's known as the father of American homebrewing, his um, wooden spoon, which he calls his charismatic spoon. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's the most humble and 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 the most famous uh, object that seems to be on display in this case. He's is now still got the yeast on it from well, his first batch you know, of homebrew. <laughs> actually, no, not so much that, but wonderful other things. If you look at the spoon, you can tell that he is right-handed because of how the spoon, because of how the wear is on the spoon. He's notched the spoon to help him in his brewing, and then. Uh, he and his uh, friends in, in Boulder, they gave the spoon a goodbye party before he sent it off to the Smithsonian. And so I, I am fairly certain that when it arrived in the museum, it had uh, a few stray pieces of glitter on it from this from this goodbye party uh, that he had. Um, no, but just and uh, materials from Fritz Maytag, who revitalized Anchor Brewing Company in the 1960s. Michael Lewis, a beloved professor of brewing science at UC Davis. Um, Ken Grossman at Sierra Nevada, Jack McAuliffe, New Albion. One thing, going back to Charlotte Papazian Spoon. (laughs) So you selected that item for the collection, and what happens when it gets to you? Do you have to (laughs) clean it, mount it... Lots of care, yes. I mean, you know, when the Smithsonian acquires an object, we... We pledge to preserve it, to take care of it in perpetuity. Those are the those are the words, and so uh, quite a lot of of care happens when something arrives at the museum that it's um, it's photographed and cataloged, and the the status of its uh, you know its its status is documented if it needs conservation, especially before going on display. That happens, um, and uh, it's uh, it's goes through a whole series of steps that kind of enter it into the realm of uh, of you know American history. 
So do you think you have the dream job? I, <laughs> I, 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 have, I have no complaints. I mean, it's just uh, it's amazing to be able to have conversations like this and to travel around and meet people who uh, love what they do and, and make an amazing industry. Well, I remember a few years ago when this job was announced, the Smithsonian Beer Historian, it hit all the beer blogs. So <laughs> congratulations. Well, so I, happy uh, to have my you on. job, though, is to document the expertise of others in, in terms of what they do. So that's, uh, that's a, an honor. And Clay, anything else you want to say about that time, 1898? Um, we know Teddy Roosevelt became president. Mm-hmm. I knew that he had been the p- police commissioner in New York. I didn't really know so much about what he had to go through uh, in, to go yeah, I mean, put the uh, Rough Riders together. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd say is, uh, look, I mean, I think one of, not to uh, sort of tout the book, but I mean, I think that's an important time and the story is important because it really brings, I mean, one of the things that appealed to me about it was that it brought so much of what America was like at the time, uh, whether it's, you know, demographics or, or the, uh, uh, the, the kind of the attitudes toward the rest of the world, toward each other that, uh, Americans were developing and, uh, to sort of see that within the context of just kind of everyday life as well. And it includes what people were eating and drinking and how they, I mean, one of the things I thought was fascinating too, is the, the kind of encounter that these men had with Cuba. And once they got to Cuba and what was, what was Cuban life like? Uh, there was, uh, they were not allowed to eat a lot of the foods that were there that were regularly consumed coconuts, melons, uh, because it was assumed that those were, and, and, you know, for men whose stomachs were not used to that, it actually wasn't that great for them. Will, will you read this? You, you keep talking about uh, frying hardtack and bacon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this one here, just, I want to get your voice reading those oh, two yeah, lines. Oh, yeah, my voice. From your book. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, all right, so hardtack is like, uh, it's like a bis- like an incredibly hard biscuit, like tile hard. It's that flat, uh, but also doesn't go bad because... There's nothing to go bad. Uh, so it says, uh, they had learned from the regulars, they being the Rough Riders, they had learned from the regulars how to fry bacon in a pan, then, keeping the drippings hot, drop in a few pieces of hardtack to soften them, uh, which is pretty disgusting. But at the same time, I love skillet cooking with Oh, yeah, fat. no, sure. Hey, uh, American ingenuity. <laughs> and then, Teresa, so you mentioned your, your current exhibit at the Smithsonian. You've got some items from Fritz Maytag. Tell us about an item that you can relate to that is from him. From Fritz. Yeah. Because Fritz is is to us the father of craft brewing. He donated a microscope that his father gave him when he was a teenager. And Fritz Maytag, um, he grew up in Iowa in the Maytag, you know, the, the home of the Maytag company, Maytag Washing Machines. And Fritz said later and during our oral history that um, when he ended up purchasing Anchor Brewing Company in 1965, he was not so much a fan of, of beer. Um, and the, the beer at the time that had been produced by Anchor um, had, you know, had some inconsistencies, you know, sanitation issues. But Fritz said that he actually always felt that he was an alchemist. He had a passion for alchemy, that he loved going into this little lab that he had in the basement as a kid and mixing things together to see what he will hap- what would happen, as he said. So uh, he brought this microscope with him to boarding school in Massachusetts, out to, out to Stanford when he went to college there, and then, um, and then grad school. He left grad school because he was disillusioned in the middle of the Vietnam War. Um, but... Uh, but then um, he, he brought this microscope with him to Anchor Brewing Company and put a slide of beer under the microscope. And that was, you know, just imagine him looking looking into the, the microscope. That was the start of him 
fixing the beer, perfecting the recipes, converting this brewery into the first small-scale artisan brewery that Americans had seen at the time, and that was that was the beginning of everything. Wow, that's amazing. So we're definitely going to keep up with you. We're going to keep learning with what and how can we stay in touch with what you're doing yes you can um so if you if you go online um my project the website is s as in smithsonian s.si.edu slash brew history um i tweet my travels and uh and i'm uh, at Teresa t-h-e-r-e-s-a-m-c-c-u um and uh and uh yeah just follow us online and uh, please come visit if possible all right. Thanks so much for coming on. Last question for Clay. Um, there's one more line. I'm going to read this one because I want to read it. Uh, Clara Barton and a team of Red Cross workers who arrived that evening with blankets, tents, malted milk, and a nutrient-rich beverage they called Red Cross Cider. Mm. Um, I just want to ask you, what was Red Cross Cider? Good question. <laughs> Nobody um, knows. <laughs> no, I think it's a proprietary. No, I think uh, you know, I, uh, from what I understood, it was sort of a bullion-rich, almost more like a soup. Uh, but not with any solids in it, so that men they could move around pretty easily. Uh, you know, it's a dry, probably something like a bullion. You know, drop in the drop in uh, some warm water, give it to the men. Um, you know, they would. Uh, these were wounded men who probably you know didn't have a lot of mobility, so it's fairly easy to get them to drink something. I mean, that was the idea. But uh, yeah, Red Cross cider that uh, was credited with saving many lives. And Teresa, anything else you want to say before we close out? Um, thanks to Clay for a really interesting book and uh, to both of you for a great conversation. Yeah, great. And thanks again, Clay. Thanks, that sir. quote inspired us, the soldiers in Cuba miss beer and their docks. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody, Clay Risen, New York Times, author of The Crowded Hour, Teresa McCullough, Smithsonian beer historian, right? Yes. All right. Thanks for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thank you to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, who helped bring all this together. Engineers, uh, Matt Patterson and Jess. And I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.